Good morning, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. I hope that uh, everyone's had a good weekend. Uh, those of you that are students, I hope that you're ready for finals week coming up here. Uh, is anyone here already done with all their finals for the semester? Hey, oh, okay, a, f a few people that aren't in school anymore. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, uh, I, ho I hope that you guys are able to focus really well and, uh, and do all well in your finals coming up this week. Um, as we have, this is kind of, we're still going to be having service over the Christmas break, but this is kind of our, our last big service that a lot of us will be together with for the, the semester. And uh, as I get into this, I, I just want to ask you, um, what is it that impresses you the most about another person's life? Like if you think about the people that you admire, maybe the people that you want to influence you, uh, people that you hope your life looks something like theirs, uh, what is it that you, want, that you see that attracts you to that? What marks their lives that, that you want to mark yours as well? You know, there's a lot of things that we can be impressed by. Uh, th there are so many different people actually that are competing to try to have influence in your life. You think about that, right? Uh, we literally have a term, like there's a job now that's called influencer, that people just make money off of the internet, just literally trying to influence your life. Um, and, and they could be giving you all sorts of different things, right? Like sometimes what we're really attracted to is success. It's like we, we look at someone that's achieved a ton in a given field and you say, yeah, that's something I want to really mark my life. Uh, another big one, if we're honest with ourselves, I, I think is, is wealth. Like wealth oftentimes is marking someone's life. You say, that person has something that I want and therefore I want to learn from them and be influenced by them so I can achieve the same kind of thing. Um, I, I think some, some of us are just after security, even, or, or stability in our lives, right? We, wanna, we see people that have that, and we say, I want these people to be people that I'm around because I want that kind of influence rubbing off on me. Whatever it may be, usually uh, when we want someone to be an influencer on us, it's because we see that they have something that's good and desirable, and we want it in our lives. And the more we see a person's life as good and desirable, the more influence uh, we're likely to want to give that person in our lives. So, I say all of this because we need to be very wise about pursuing, about what we're pursuing in life, and who we want to influence us in this pursuit. Right? Because no matter who you are, you are being influenced by probably a lot of different forces, a lot of different people. And you have to think, how is it that, that I'm being influenced? What is it that I'm being influenced towards? Sometimes we don't give a lot of consideration to this. And we might find ourselves being influenced by those who are not seeking our best. And we can find ourselves desiring things that are less than what it is that we were made for. You know, this is true today, and it was true 2,000 years ago in the time that most of the New Testament was written. For the past several months, we've been studying the book of 2 Corinthians together. And we call this the book of 2 Corinthians, but as I've explained many times, it's actually a letter. It was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that uh, was in this city in Greece called Corinth. And uh, he was addressing some problems that were going on in their church. And particularly, one of the big things we've seen throughout this letter is that there were some uh, relational tension between the two. 
there were these false teachers that had come into Corinth. They were slandering Paul. They uh, were basically trying to point out all of these different bad things about him or, or things that they thought really weren't fitting for somebody that should be an apostle and trying to sway the Corinthians uh, to follow their brand of Christianity rather than the one that Paul was preaching. And so in a lot of this letter, we've seen Paul uh, defending himself against these kind of attacks. And in doing so, he's given us this picture of what a faithful Christian servant actually looks like. Now, concerning these opponents, he really starts to lay into them a little bit more at the end of this letter. We don't get to hear directly from them, uh, but since it's a letter that Paul wrote, but we can infer some of the following things uh, when we look at the kind of things he was writing. And the first is that these false teachers were really talented and impressive speakers. Right? Like, he actually doesn't even seem to argue against this idea that these guys seem to be better trained orators. They were probably more fun to listen to. Maybe really persuasive in the way that they spoke. We also know that these people seem to boast a lot about their own abilities and credentials. This, seemed, uh, this tactic actually seemed to be winning a lot of influence amongst the Corinthians. Right? And Paul was concerned about the kind of influence that these false teachers were starting uh, to have over this church that he cared so much about. Paul was the one that brought the gospel to Corinth. He's the one that saw many of these people move from death to life and start following Jesus. And now as he's gone on to do work in other places, he's very concerned about the spiritual well-being of these people that are starting to be influenced by false teachers. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He was concerned that the Corinthians were being fed lies by false teachers. And he just, this is how he would go on to describe these false teachers that he was worried were going to stray, uh, make the Corinthians stray away. He said, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Paul realized that he was in a very serious battle against these false teachers here. That there was something that was extremely important that was on the line and in some ways desperate times called for desperate measures. And so uh, this morning we're going to see Paul engage in an in interesting tactic to actually combat the influence of these false teachers in Corinth. And in this process we're also going to gain insight into the kind of things that we should actually be impressed by when we're looking at people who we want to influence our lives. So let's pray, and then we'll uh, get into our main text for today. God, I just uh, thank you so much that you are our God, um, that you're worthy of worship, Lord. It's awesome just to, uh, even bef before this, to sing with all the saints here and uh, be able to lift up your name and, and celebrate who you are and what you've done. God, I thank you for that holy night. And God, we thank you that you have actually called us as your church to be your bride. That you want us to be a, a pure and, and completely devoted to you. And God, that's my desire for my own heart and my desire for this church. Is Lord, that we would be a people that are devoted in a sincere love for you. So God, we ask that you'd be with us this morning. I pray that you would work mightily here. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts and our minds. 
God, I pray that your name would be lifted up and that you would uh, just reform any sort of wrong thinking that we may have come in with this morning. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. So our main text for today is going to be uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 16 through chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, when, I, when I preach, I usually have us read that whole text at one time and then kind of go back through it piece by piece. I'm going to do that a little bit different today. Uh, instead, I'm just going to break this up into sections and we're going to look at each one one at a time. I'll preach a little bit in between. So we're going to start at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 21. This is right as Paul's in the midst of, of battling these false teachers. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you're so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit we are too weak for that. We're just going to stop right there for a second. Um, as I said, Paul knew that he was in a serious battle here. And uh, so he, he's going to combat their influence by trying to fight fire with fire. Okay? These are people that were boasting all the time. Paul is not someone that really wanted to boast about himself. But because of the uh, influence that these teachers were starting to exert over Corinth, he realized that he had to do something to get their attention back. So he's going to direct it some towards himself, and then later he'll end up directing it towards the Lord. But that's why he's talking about, I'm going to speak like a fool. I'm going to, I'm going to go on and boast a little bit the way the world does, since uh, you guys like to put up with that kind of boasting. Um, he had to do this as a desperate measure because he had to do whatever he could to stop this destructive influence of the false teachers. Matter of fact, look at what these people were doing. He says that uh, they enslaved the Corinthians, right? You put up with people that enslave you. Now, I'm not sure exactly how they did this, uh, but there's no doubt that on some level they, they were preaching a different gospel than the one that Paul preached. And that always is going to result in being enslaved in some way. They're either going to be enslaved to the law, thinking that that's something that can save them when it can't. This is something that Paul fought in some of the churches he planted, especially Galatians. There were these Judaizing teachers that were coming in and saying, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you've still got to follow all these things in the law. And that's what will actually save you. And Paul like, vehemently opposed that. He didn't want people to fall under this yoke of slavery that was the law. And at the same time, maybe these teachers were more licentious. And they were trying to just tell people that they could kind of live however they wanted and it didn't matter. And if you do that, you end up under the slavery of sin. And Paul talks in Romans about how we're people that are set free from the slavery of sin. So whatever it is, the only thing that can actually free us from being slaves, whether it's slaves to legalism or whether that's slaves to sin, the only thing that can actually deliver us from that is the true gospel. And that's not what these people were preaching. You know, they, he also says that they were exploiting the Corinthians. Uh, we've seen a little bit this, this idea that they were definitely charging money on some level. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, I've talked about that some. Uh, they were not only bringing a destructive message, but the Corinthians were paying them to do it. All right, so they're literally exploiting them and taking advantage of them. And when it says that they're putting on airs, this just is a, a figure of speech talking about exalting themselves or acting superior to others. They're definitely the kind of people that like to puff themselves up. And he even says that they slapped the Corinthians in the face, right? I think he's speaking metaphorically here. But honestly, like, that's, that's the way that they're treating him. And so he goes on to say, like, man, I, I, I'm ashamed that I was too weak to do these kind of things. 
Now, of course, he's being facetious, uh, but the reality is that Paul had treated them really well, yet somehow they were being led astray by these false teachers that treated them poorly, right? It's like that, that guy who treats the girl really well, and yet for some reason he's interested in the guy that treats her really poorly instead. Like, that's kind of what, what's going on here. And so because of this, Paul says, I'm going to boast. I'm going to boast a little bit the way the world does. Um, even just put up with me like a fool. And so here's, here's what he has to say. He has quite a bit that he's able to boast about. Uh, picking back up here in verse 21, he says, Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, in danger from false believers. I have laid and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of these things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. <clears throat> In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the, Dam of the Damascans guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Okay, we'll stop there again for a second. Uh, have you ever gone to a lecture and uh, maybe it's like a, a special speaker that's coming in and they have kind of like his hype man come up before and tell you all the credentials that this person has for why you should listen to them? Like, he has three PhDs and this and that. And, uh, you know, he was professor here and this and he had this published. And, you know, they're basically setting all these credentials of like, look, this is why you should listen to everything this guy is about to say to you. Well, remember, Paul is in a battle for influence in Corinth. And so even though he really doesn't want to do that because he doesn't want to make himself the subject, uh, he, he would rather just t turn all glory to God, he realizes he's at a spot where he's going to have to establish his credentials before the Corinthians. So even though he's very, clearly very uncomfortable doing it, that's what he goes on here to speak about. And so I actually want to just kind of work through each of these one by one because I, I know when I was studying for this sermon, I was just uh, struck with, with thankfulness and, and honestly very impressed in a lot of ways uh, by all the things that, that God had done through Paul and in Paul. And so I want to just, just uh, walk through some of these things. First off, he talks about uh, his, his bloodlines. Now, this was something that is probably not going to be very impressive to most of us, uh, but to people in this time, it may have been important, uh, that he was a Hebrew, an Israelite, and, and uh, uh, Abraham's descendant. Essentially, this idea was that he came from the right stock to be a teacher about God. Right? God had made this, uh, this old covenant promise with the people of Israel, and these are the people that Paul came from. He grew up in this culture. He knew the scriptures extremely well. Not only was he someone that was an Israelite, but in fact, uh, he came from a, a background where he was a Pharisee, which meant that he knew the scriptures like crazy well. He had studied them uh, at a, a depth and, and to an extent that most of us would probably find completely crazy. 
you know, when it comes to service and sacrifice, regardless of what you thought about Paul, no one could say that he was not devoted to his cause. This dude put everything on the line to be obedient to Jesus and bring the gospel to new places. You know, look at this list. He talks about how he's been in prison more frequently. This alone, just going to prison for Christ, is, shows a, a very serious devotion. You know, I don't know that many people that have, have been in prison uh, for Christ. That's not a picnic uh, now, but especially not even then, right? Like prison conditions were as good. They didn't have cable TV or anything. Like th- that's it's no joke, some of the prisons that Paul found himself spending time in. And he was there a lot. But it wasn't just that. Like that's just the beginning. He says he's been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Paul went through so many beatings so that people could hear about Jesus. I, I don't know, I, I know one guy I think of that's been through a serious beating uh, for his faith in Jesus. I've never been through a serious beating because of my faith. I'm thankful for that. Um, Paul had been through it a ton, right? He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Uh, 40 lashes was the most that you could whip somebody according to Jewish law. And so when they call it the 40 lashes minus one, what they would do, they'd just give you 39 in case they miscounted accidentally, so they wouldn't go over according to the law. Five times, Paul had this happen to him, okay? That means that he would have had his clothes stripped off and had a a leather whip just 39 times across the same spot on his back. Now, it wouldn't have been quite as bad as the Roman flogging uh, that Jesus went through before he was crucified, but this is still something that would have been very severe. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, and once he was pelted with stones. These are really serious beatings as well, right? Especially the one about being pelted with stones. Being pelted with stones was actually an ancient form of of, uh, execution. And the first Christian martyr that we have documented, Stephen, was actually killed in this way. People pelted stones at him until he died. You can read about that in Acts chapter 7. And so as Paul's going through all these kind of beatings, and remember, it's not like he goes through this and then he can go home to, like a, a, to, go to like a, a hospital to get help, right? There wasn't like a modern hospital he'd go to. Matter of fact, he couldn't even go home and take Tylenol or ibuprofen. Like, like, like imagine that, right? Like that, that's, that's an incredible amount of suffering that this man endured physically to bring the gospel to the very people that were doing all these kind of things to him. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. This is no joke either. Right? Like, imagine being shipwrecked. I've never been through that experience, uh, but I actually, I've heard stories from people who have been shipwrecked, and it's terrible. Uh, I was watching a, I, I'm a history nerd, so I watch like a lot of World War II documentaries and stuff, um, and I was listening to the experience of this one guy who was fighting in the Pacific, and uh, you know, his, his ship was sunk, so he was stranded at sea. I think he was there for like three days or something. Uh, so Paul says, hey, I spent a day and a night in open sea. That's not a picnic, okay? As I was hearing this guy from World War II describe his experience as he was stuck out there in the Pacific, it was crazy to think about the things that he was going through that you may not have even thought of. First off, you become incredibly dehydrated. Uh, you're, you're stuck around all this water, but it's salt water, right? So you're just baking in the, in the sun and have no way to be able to replenish your body with what it needs. This starts to lead to delirium and hallucination, he talked about how some of his uh, friends that were uh, you know, also trying to, to float out there with him, uh, he said one of them literally started to go crazy, said that he saw his mom on the porch just off that way and started to swim off. And that one of his friends tried to stop him, and the guy got his knife out and was going to stab the guy trying to stop him, so he just let him go, and he just swam off and drowned. 
Um, that, that kind of hallucination can set in when you're just sitting out there in the water like that. Um, there's hostile marine life that you're with. This guy was talking about how some of his friends literally just get pulled down by sharks that were eating them around him. Um, not to mention, this could be really cold, depending on where you were and what time of the year it was. So, no joke to go through that experience. He says in verse 26, he's been constantly on the move. You know, sometimes this was by choice because he was choosing to go around and preach to, to new groups. Uh, sometimes this wasn't by choice. He was having to run through enemies. He talked about how the time he had to literally be, uh, escape through Damascus in a basket. Uh, he was driven out of towns uh, on several occasions. And either way, whether this was by choice or being forced out, travel in this time uh, would, would, would get exhausting. Travel can get exhausting even now, right? And we have like cushioned car seats and planes that we complain about being too small. Guys, travel is a lot better now than it was back then. Like, like think about that. Uh, he, he's talking about traveling in a way where you're either sitting on a, a, you know, a wooden ship or you're riding on an animal, you're walking, not nearly as comfortable means of, of transportation. He says, I've been in danger from rivers. <laughs> this might seem like a silly statement to us, uh, but it goes back to that idea of just how difficult travel was even in that time. We're used to just having a bridge that can, we can easily cross whatever river we're trying to go to, and there's a good road that leads to that bridge. That's not how this was. Uh, anyone who played the old Oregon Trail computer game, you know that crossing rivers can be perilous, right? I've lost many an oxen trying to, to cross a river in Oregon Trail. <clears throat> right, Paul, Paul found himself in danger from this. Um, <clears throat> in danger from bandits, he says, in verse 26, he says, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. Look at this. So many different groups that wanted to harm this guy. Right? Uh, bandits, they're just indiscriminately dangerous, right? They just want your money. They're going to go after anybody. Um, but, but Jews, these are like people that are supposed to be God-fearing and religious. And frankly, they were hatching assassination plots against him. You can read about some of these in Acts. They, they were literally trying to ambush him and kill him at times. Uh, Gentiles, these are the main people that... These, Gentile is just a term that means non-Jew, so everybody else. Um, these are the main people that Paul was preaching to on his missionary journeys, but sometimes they didn't like what he had to say either. So they were the ones that were sometimes throwing him in prison. One time in Ephesus, he actually incited a riot from his ministry there. He talks about being in danger in the city, in danger in the country, and in danger at sea. Just like there were so many groups of people that were opposed to his ministry... There wasn't really a safe place that he could go to either, right? If he goes in the city, there's people there that want to get him. If he goes in the country, there's people that want to get him. Even if he goes to sea, he keeps getting sh shipwrecked. Like, there's just th this, this constant danger. Think about the lack of rest that that would make you feel like you have. You, you would have to be someone that really, truly learns how to rest in the Lord when you're under that kind of uh, stress and danger all the time. It's like constantly living, living on the front lines of a war zone. He says in verse 26 that he was also in danger from false believers. This would probably be one of the hardest, right? Because as, as your family in Christ, like these are the people where you say, man, we can really trust each other. We can encourage each other. This is my home base. These are my people. Yet even amongst uh, these churches that he's planting and people he's working with, some of them are false believers that are actually working to try and harm him. You know, he talks about how his basic needs were often neglected. He says, I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I've been cold and naked. These kind of things could have been caused by any of the stuff that we've already mentioned, right? Like consistently going, out, going without stuff that we just take for granted on a daily basis. And besides all of that physical difficulty that we've just gone through, 
there was an emotional and spiritual difficulty as well. He says this in verses 28 and 29. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? You know, Paul was trying to do more than just survive physically, which as you can see, was already a difficult task. But not only was he trying to simply stay alive, he was trying to accomplish a very important mission. He wasn't just playing defense, he was also playing offense, consistently trying to take the gospel into new places. Think of the the relationship that he must have had with Christ that would continue to sustain him through that kind of difficulty. You know, in one sense, it's impressive to think about all the pain and sacrifice that Paul went through in serving the Lord. However, he doesn't share all of this to show how strong he is. Rather, he actually shows it shares it to show how weak he is. Look at what he said in verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father of Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. You see, in all of these things, there is an actual consistent theme of Paul's weakness. He has a consistent inability to control all of these different kind of circumstances that are going on around him. You know, he, he was unable to persuade all sorts of enemies that wanted to kill him, all these people that he was in danger from, right? He was too weak to be able to convert them. His body was physically having weakness that he was having to deal with. You know, we should be encouraged by this. Sometimes we fall into this idea that, and thinking that Christians should always be able to just see great results and control our environments and all the outcomes. This is not the case, though. Paul experienced a ton of rejection. His weakness was showed consistently throughout his ministry. And you know what? You could say the same about Jesus. We forget that even Jesus was rejected and crucified. They were familiar with weakness and failure. You know, in Paul's battle here against the false teachers, he isn't actually done boasting yet, though. He's going to go on to talk a lot about a little bit more in chapter 12. Uh, picked it up in chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul goes on here to share about this amazing spiritual experience he had that profoundly impacted his life. In some way, he got a kind of glimpse of heaven. He was taken up to, it says, a third heaven um, that 
there's so much I could kind of get into here that I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail with, but basically what he's communicating is this idea of like, I've been, I got in some way, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but I got to see this, this place, this paradise, right? That's the same word that Jesus said to the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. In some way he got to, to be taken in this spot to have a vision that was too wonderful to even be able to really speak about. He says he's not even permitted to tell. And, and this experience was so powerful, uh, but he speaks about it in such a strange way, right? He actually speaks about the experience as if it happened to somebody else. He says, I know a man that this happened to, or I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself. Um, but it, it's clear that he has to be talking about himself, right? Because he says that the thorn in the flesh was given to him to stop him from being conceited about this vision. So there seems to be this, this strange way he's communicating about this, and uh, he's so reluctant to share or boast about it um, that he kind of shares it in a very indirect way. He doesn't really want to use this as something to establish why the Corinthians should trust him. So I think he's even guarded in how he shares the story. You know, it's okay for him to share this story. It's impressive. I, I would love to talk to somebody that's had an experience like that, that's gotten to see in, in some capacity uh, paradise. Um, and it would have been fine for him to share that. But the problem is this isn't really something that you can use to establish a person's credibility. Right? Like you just have to take it or leave it. If I say hey, I had this amazing vision, you can either believe me or not believe me. And it, it really doesn't do anything to actually establish my credibility. There's no doubt that it was important to him personally but it didn't really do a lot to build up the church, and that's probably why you don't see him talk about it in any other place in Scripture either. You see, what he wanted the church to do was inform their opinion on him based on the things that he said and did, which is what he says here in 2 Corinthians 12, 16. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. So he, he is telling the truth. He says, but I refrain, so no one will think more of me than what is warranted by what I do or say. So that kind of begs the question, why is it that he got into talking about this experience at all? He says, it's really not valuable for me to, to boast about this. So why is it that he's sharing about this experience at all? Well, there's probably two reasons. First off, uh, the false apostles were likely sharing stories about their spiritual experiences, right? Uh, probably making up stuff about how they had seen God or whatever, and this might have pulled people in to want to try and listen to them. And, and so I think Paul has this idea of saying, no, you know what, I actually have had this kind of experience where I've seen God in an incredible way, but it's not really worth me talking about it. But he at least wanted to address that. But the second thing is that this amazing experience actually resulted in him becoming weaker. So sharing this story allowed him to share about his weakness, which is what he really wanted to boast about more than his strength. Notice that he was really weird in talking about the vision, right? Like he did it in a very indirect way, but he's very straightforward in identifying himself as the man that had the thorn in the flesh. What he really wants to start bringing home to the Corinthians is not boasting about his strengths, but boasting about his weaknesses. You know, Paul became weaker as a result of this experience because he was given a thorn in his flesh. It says, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 
Now, what exactly this thorn in the flesh is, is a mystery. It's been debated, and there's been so many different ideas that people have proposed about it. We don't know what exactly it is. You know, some people think it was temptations that Paul was having to deal with. Some people think that it was opponents to his ministry. Uh, Some people think that it was a physical illness that he was dealing with. There's probably the best evidence for that. Um, There was a guy named Tertullian that lived about 100 years after the death of Paul that believed Paul was struggling with uh, consistent migraines that were debilitating. But we don't know for sure what this thorn in the flesh is that was given to him. And regardless, it isn't essential for us to know what it was. If it was important for us to know the detail of it, Paul would have shared it. I think it's actually in some ways better that we don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. Because some of the rest of us might have other kinds of weaknesses that God wants to work through and be strong. So there's probably some intentionality even in why Paul didn't specify what it is. What we do know about the thorn is this, though. Three things. First off, it was a messenger of Satan that tormented him. Whatever it was, it was, it was something that was serious. Like it was, out to, it, it was causing him great harm, tormenting him. And, and the Lord was allowing this to happen. Two, Paul pleaded with God to take it away. Like he really wanted this kind of thing gone. I don't know um, if you have some sort of significant weakness that you feel like is crippling you in your life. you're probably pleading with God to take that away. You know, I appreciate Alexa sharing her story up here earlier. It's like, I I don't doubt that she's probably been pleading with the Lord on some level to take away some of the things that she was talking about. But we see here, the third thing is that the Lord refused to take it away. There was a purpose for this thorn in the flesh. Painful as it was, it was accomplishing great things. There was a significant purpose for why God actually wanted to allow this to happen in the life of Paul. And there's three things with that. First off, it was to stop Paul from being conceited. Right? He literally straight up says that in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. It was something that was humbling. As Paul was reminded of his weakness, he he, uh, had to stay humble. But two, it taught Paul the sufficiency of God's grace. Look at what Jesus said. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul had to realize that he had everything that he needed because he had the grace of God. You know, he echoes this same statement later when he's writing to the Philippian church. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. When we realize that we have the grace of Christ in our lives, that's sufficient. Like, this is something that's greater than even being able to be delivered from whatever thorn in the flesh that that he might have been struggling with. And it's greater than any other kind of thing that you might see in an influencer's life that you desire to be in your own. Jesus wanted Paul to see, my grace is sufficient for you. when When I chose to save you and bring you into my family, that is enough. And finally, it allowed God to show his power through Paul's weakness. Right? Verse 9 said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. You see, this is something that Paul learned to realize was actually a blessing, difficult as it was to deal with. It allowed Christ's power to work through him in a more mighty way. We've talked earlier in this letter about how God puts his treasure in jars of clay, right? Like we're weak vessels. But if the the vessel is weak, it shows even more the power of the God that's working through it. 
And in some ways you could say that this passage right here is the climax of the whole book of 2 Corinthians. In this whole letter, Paul has been defending himself against the attacks of the false teachers and working to reestablish his credibility with the Corinthians. But in all of it, what he's really wanted to do is turn their eyes upon God. He hasn't wanted this thing to be about him really at all. God is the reason that Paul was an apostle in the first place, and it's only because of the power of God working in him that he's worth listening to anyways. Essentially, what Paul's saying, he, he is a faithful and trustworthy apostle, not because of his own strength, his own talents, or his own abilities, but rather because of the strength of Christ working through his weakness. And this is a totally different perspective from the false apostles that Paul was opposing in Corinth. The reason that Paul is a picture of a faithful Christian servant is not because he was such a strong person, but rather because Christ works mightily within him, and through him. And so what do we take from this? Like, like, like what do we do here, right? Like, we're, we're not in a spot where we're necessarily trying to battle with false teachers versus Paul. Is who should we let be the influence in our lives? Although in some ways we are, right? We have competing influences that teach us all sorts of different worldviews, and we have to decide, who are we going to let shape us? Are we going to let... All, all sorts of forces from wherever they may come in the world shape us and influence us? Are we going to let the teaching of one of God's apostles shape us. I have three major things that I think we can take away from this. The first is that we should let God, sh- uh, this is going to be something that lets God shape our perspective on weakness. When we come to realize that God loves to work through weakness, that can change the way that we see it, right? We can actually learn to celebrate it the way Paul did in verse 10. He says, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't think this is a perspective that most of us have. I'm still being sanctified, guys. I I hope you know that. I'm not a perfect Christian, not even close. Uh, I'm still on this journey with all of you, right? And and I I feel like this is something that I I still need the Lord to be reforming my mind to, to, to see that I can actually even celebrate my weaknesses because it allows God to show his strength. You know, James showed this same idea in James 1, 2 to 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't ask God to take away things that are difficult, right? Like, I'm not saying that it's bad to pray. Uh, I don't think Paul was wrong to be praying that the thorn in the flesh would be taken away. You'll notice that Jesus actually did something similar before he was crucified, before he was betrayed. He was praying, and he actually was asking the Lord, you know, uh, he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had something very difficult that was in front of him, and he wanted it taken away if could be. But, Notice the mentality, not my will, but yours be done. And we must realize that God may be allowing a trial in our lives so that something greater can be accomplished. Praise God that the Father didn't take that cup away from Jesus. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't have died on the cross and accomplished what was necessary for our salvation. You know, just as uh, it was necessary for Paul uh, to have this thorn in the flesh. I don't know what kind of weakness or trials you're going through. And it's fine for you to pray that the Lord would deliver you from them. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot that's sensible about that. But know that God may want to keep that in your life because he has a purpose in that how he's working through it. The second thing I would say is that we need to let God shape our perspective on leaders and influencers. 
We let people influence us who have what we want. And ideally, we should be letting people influence us who have a great relationship with God. People that aren't necessarily strong in of themselves, but that you see God working in a strong way through. This is more important than the presence of a, 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 one that projects strength. Boasting is not what should impress us about a person, but rather God working in that person should make us compelled to want to be influenced by their lives. You know, Paul concludes this section about boasting by drawing attention to this. He says in 2 Corinthians 11-12, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to do it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super-apostles, even though I am nothing. I have persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Paul is basically saying, man, you guys, like, you, you should have been able to see me for who I actually am. I've laid all this kind of thing out to you. I've shown you my weakness. I've shown you God working powerfully through it. Uh, he's even worked through me in ways to have signs, wonders, miracles, all this kind of stuff. Uh, the marks of an apostle are in my life. And, and it should be clear that I'm the one that should be influencing you rather than these false teachers. And so when we're thinking about who is it that we want to be influencing us, we have to ask, do we want Jesus to be the one influencing us? Do we want Jesus' followers to be the ones that are influencing us? Or do we want to be influenced by those that are kind of tempting us to go away towards lesser things? You know, finally, I would say that we need to let God show his strength in and through us. The first step in doing this is surrendering your life to Christ. Right? The gospel actually requires us to see our weakness, to own our weakness, and come to God for strength, right? That, I, I want you to get this because I think so often, I, I talk to so many people that tell me they're, they're a Christian and, and they, they do not understand the gospel. Because what they think being a Christian is, is basically living the best life you can, being the best person you can, treating others the way you want to be treated. And, and really, yeah, I hope you're doing those kind of things, but that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that in our weakness, we're not actually able to do all those kind of things on our own. Like as much as we would love to be good people that never sin and always love and do the right things, we don't. We fail. We're weak. And in our weakness, God steps in in strength. And that's what we're, we celebrate at Christmas. The idea that God came and took on flesh, saw us in our weakness, saw us in this state that there was nothing that we could do to fix this brokenness problem that we have. And Jesus comes and he, he walks on the earth and he lives a perfect life and he dies on the cross for our sins. And as he dies on the cross for his sins, he says, come to me, all of you who are weak. I'm, I'm here to save you. I'm taking all of the sin that you're guilty of upon myself. And when he, he rose from the dead, showing the ultimate strength, the only one that's actually been able to overcome sin and death. He overcomes this, he raises from the dead and he invites all of us who are weak to be strong in him. In order to, to actually come to Christ, we must understand our weakness and our need to be saved in the first place. And as we're adopted into his family, we must still choose to do his will and let him show that strength that he wants to show through us. You know, Paul did, a, did this a ton when he was going around preaching in his weakness. 
There were so many things that he was unable to do. There were, there were uh, so many people he was unable to persuade. I'm sure he felt the weakness of his flesh all the time. But in all of it, because he put himself in position uh, where he, he put himself in position where God was able to work in and through him, and God did awesome, strong, mighty things through him. You know, if we don't ever step up, take risks, put ourselves in vulnerable positions, then we don't give the, God the opportunity to show his strength in the midst of our weakness. And I think for so many of us, we, we maybe even are aware of our weakness, but we're not aware of the strength that God wants to have in working in our lives. And so I just want to say this as an encouragement to you. If you're a Christian and you understand your weakness and you understand the way that you need Jesus to save you, I also want you to see the strength that he wants to have in your life. Right? That even if you can point to all these different reasons for why you're someone that God shouldn't use, whether that's, uh, you know, you're too awkward or uh, you're not smart enough or uh, you're not pretty enough or whatever it may be, that you would cast those kind of things aside and realize that none of that really matters. Because God doesn't care about how strong you are. He's already plenty strong enough to overcome any sort of deficiency that you have. What he wants is for you to come to him in weakness and let his strength work in you. And so may we be people that, like the Apostle Paul, learn to to accept our weaknesses, to boast in them, and to let the Lord be strong in them. Let's pray. God, we love you, um, and we just thank you that you love us. I thank you that you're strong in the midst of our weaknesses. God, that even as we go through all sorts of trials, hardships, difficulties. Um, Lord, none of that stuff is is stuff that should derail us. None of that stuff is um, stuff that stops you from being able to accomplish your mission. God, I thank you for uh, the Apostle Paul and that even though he was weak, you were strong in him. And you did mighty things through him, God. And I I just ask that uh, for us, Lord, you would work in the same way. That even though we're weak, Lord, we have a lot of reasons we could point to for why you shouldn't work through us. We know that you love to display your power through weakness. And so God, if there's, uh, if there's thorns in the flesh that people have, if there's lingering difficulties, afflictions, whatever it may be, that, that we're having a hard time even seeing what you want to accomplish in it, I pray that you might give some clarity to that this morning. Just as you gave Paul clarity as he continually pleaded for you to to take away the thorn in the flesh that he had. And then, uh, Jesus, you spoke to him, saying that your grace is sufficient, that your power is made perfect in weakness. God, if there's anyone in the room this morning that's um, just struggling with something that that they're they're being tormented by and they really want you to take away, I ask God that that you would uh, give insight into that struggle. I thank you that you're our God, Lord. I thank you that you're with us as we go forth from here. And um, we just ask that our, our praises would be honoring to you. And we love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.